Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference Podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by independent scholar Dr John Cronin. Dr Cronin's PhD thesis was on the Irish royalist elite of Charles II in exile, circa 1649 to 1660. He has contributed to the Dictionary of Irish Biography and has been a researcher on the Irish Battlefields Project. His paper is entitled The Marchioness of Ormond's Return from Exile and the Butler Patrimony. During the War of the Three Kingdoms, choosing exile in continental Europe was common for many high-status royalists in Britain and Ireland. It permitted them to plot against their enemies from a safe distance. They could seek assistance for their cause and their places of refuge. It also allowed them to avoid the wrath of the English parliamentary forces and its allies. Yet exile came at a cost. This was especially true of persons whose means and status was based upon real estate wealth. Exile meant risking the loss of this font of power and status for themselves and their dynasty. It is unsurprising, then, that the exiles made a great effort to preserve and exploit these lands from abroad. Others simply abandoned exile and returned home. The most well-known example, though not the only one, nor necessarily well-studied one, is the case of Lady Elizabeth Butler, wife of James Marquis of Ormond. Prior to marriage, Elizabeth was the heir to the Earl of Desmond, making her heir to a large part of what had formerly been the Ormond estate, and she brought this legacy into her marriage to her cousin, James Butler, in 1629. Having resided in Kilkenny in Dublin during the early years of the Confederate Wars, Lady Butler went to England with her husband in 1647, after the failure of the First Ormond Peace. She and her children went into exile in France in 1648, just as her husband returned to Ireland. And she was not to be reunited with her husband until early 1651, January 1651, when he too went into exile in France. Their reunion was relatively short. Less than two years after Ormond's exile began, Elizabeth returned home to recover those lands that she had brought into her marriage. So she was not looking for the whole Ormond estate, she was just looking for what the part she had brought in in 1629. It was not a hastily made move home. Prior to her husband's return to France, or prior to her husband's journey to France in 1651, Elizabeth Butler had considered ending her exile. She admitted this in a letter to Sir Edward Nicholas, the King's secretary, in early 1651. She claimed, however, that returning home was not to her liking, as the royalists still had hopes of success, and her husband, newly arrived in France, could still find employment abroad. Yet from a familial point of view, returning home was attractive. First, it could provide her with the means to support herself and her children. Also, if the royalist cause failed, she would have a patrimony to pass on afterwards. It would also reduce the financial burden faced by her husband in exile. There was also a greater chance that she would be successful in her efforts to regain the family property on her own, as she would be treated as a non-competent and as someone uninvolved in politics simply because of her sex. Her efforts to protect English Protestant settlers at the outbreak of the 1641 rebellion were also well known and would probably win her some sympathy from the English Parliament. In contrast, her husband, leading a royalist that he was, was unlikely to be treated leniently if he returned. Yet, when it came to deciding whether or not to seek the recovery of part of their estate, the Butlers were faced with two conflicting calls upon their loyalty, one from their own dynasty and one from the Stuarts. 
On the one hand, personal interests, along with dynastic concerns and duties, meant that it behoved him to try and preserve as much of their patrimony as possible. After all, aside from the personal advantages, the butlers were honour-bound to try and recover their family's fortunes. Studies of the concept of honour in the early Stuart world have drawn attention to the obligations that a man of honour owed his own lineage. This duty to one's family was of paramount importance, arguably outweighing other duties arising out of oaths and promises of service. In this context, however, attempting to honour these family responsibilities was problematic. Though speaking of mercenary, mercenary truth when he said that another royalist Irish exile, Viscount Taft, pointed out that attempting to agree personal terms with those they viewed as usurpers was a moral dilemma for this royalist elite. This also applied to a state, as coming to terms with usurpers, such as the English Parliament, or the royalists called them usurpers, coming to terms with these usurpers meant tacitly accepting their right to redistribute property, arguably an implicit abandonment of the Stuart cause and of the Stuart claim to government. The question for the butlers in 1651, then, was how were they to reconcile their potentially conflicting claims of the Stuart and Butler dynasties? And I'm going to argue that they took a multi-pronged approach to the problem. First, Elizabeth Butler investigated the possibility of coming to terms with the Republic over her inheritance. Simultaneously, the Butler sought to assure others that her return home would not mean abandoning the Stuarts. In the first part of this strategy, Elizabeth drew upon the aid of associates of the Butler dynasty in Britain and Ireland. Even before quitting exile, exile even, she used others to sound out the chances of making a successful claim. These people then aided her further by preparing the ground for her return. To give an example, Elizabeth Butler used James Buck, a former servant of the Butlers, as an intermediary to, Crown, to Cromwell and Parliament. Buck was sent with a letter to Cromwell in early 1651. Now it took Buck some time to gain an audience with the general, and then Cromwell only gave verbal assurances of favour. By autumn 1651, however, Buck had succeeded in gaining an assurance that Cromwell would speak to the Council of State on Lady Butler's behalf. Buck also secured a promise of protection for her on her return home. Now, Buck was not alone in doing this. Cromwell received solicitations on her behalf from others, including Lady Roscommon and Lord Strafford. These appeals do not seem to have been coordinated with Buck. In contrast, Buck definitely cooperated with Lady Piggott, who was charged with securing a pass into England for the Marchioness, and he also cooperated with Jack Stevens. No. Having received positive news from Buck and others, the butlers then moved to reassure their royalist associates about their intentions. To this end, the butlers' efforts to petition Cromwell were never kept from other exiles or their wider circle of associates at home or abroad. We've already seen that Elizabeth Butler wrote to Nicholas about her intentions to return home. Nicholas, it has to be said, was very supportive. Indeed, he had recommended this very course of action to her before 1651. And Nicholas even wrote to James Butler in December 1651 with advice on how to pursue the Marchioness's claim. There was little else that Sir Edward Nicholas could do, as his own wife was negotiating with the Republican regime for a share of her husband's property. In summer 1651, Ormond also told Inchy Quinn of Lady Elizabeth's intentions to return home. This is uh, Moore O'Brien, Earl of Inchy Quinn. Again, however, Inchy Quinn had previously given the same advice to the butlers as Nicholas had. In 1652, Ormond wrote to the Marquis of Clanrickard about his wife's mission, assuring him that the butlers had the king's consent, and further added that Clanrickard should not believe that Ormond would be, and I quote, less industrious or zealous in furthering the relief of the kingdom of Ireland. 
If we can judge by the reaction of Jeffrey Brown, one of Ken Rickard's agents on mainland Europe, Orman need not have worried. Okay. Brown both condoned and justified Elizabeth Butler's pursuit of her estate. Brown even argued it was not just in Butler's interest to recover their estate, it was in the royalist interest as well. Thank you very much. There's the letter from Brown. Okay. So uh, it's true. Anyway. Most significantly, the butlers informed Charles II of their intentions at this time. After the king's return to France following the defeat of Worcester, Charles had been in Scotland 1650-1651, and then England, and then was returned to France after the Battle of Worcester, Ormond saw Charles II's permission to send his family to Britain. Ormond was clearly careful to get the king's consent to Elizabeth's return home. Obtaining it also undoubtedly made it easier to win others' approval for their proposed course of action. Yet these efforts to gain the king's consent were probably excessive. Prior to Ormond quitting Ireland in December 1650, Daniel O'Neill had spoken with Charles II in Scotland about the Butler situation. O'Neill subsequently advised Lady Ormond that the king had consented to her returning home and compounding with Parliament for her estate. It has to be said in truth that many exiles took this step before Butler's death. Before the Butler's death, I've seen Sir Edward Nicholas, George Radcliffe's wife, Another prominent English royalist with an Irish background also had his wife claim lands on her part, on his part in uh, Yorkshire during this period. Exile was an option taken up by many royalists only while hope remained for their political cause. Abandoning exile and coming to terms with the enemy also became a more attractive strategy once supporting oneself abroad became difficult. In six, by 1651, growing poverty, combined with military developments in mid to late 1651, created a trend towards abandoning exile within the expatriate royalist community. Things were going badly in Ireland, the negotiations with Lorraine were running into difficulty, and September 1651 was, uh, brought the Battle of Worcester, which saw Charles II defeated. So by, by mid-September 1651... It looked like the royalist cause uh, was finished, at least in the short term. Okay. Many immigrants, as a result, decided to abandon exile. Ormond certainly believed that Worcester was a turning point. Writing to Nicholas in October 1651, uh, he stated that the exile royalists needed to know two things. Charles II's fate after the Battle of Worcester and the terms the Parliament would offer to, defeat, to the defeated, to the royalist exiles, quote, to return to their own. You can see the quote there. So basically, we've tried everything, everything's failed, better see what happens with the king. Doesn't look like we have any hope. Uh, so what we need, and so basically it might be time to talk to the royalist parliamentarians, uh, talk to the par royalist parliamentarians, talk to the parliamentarians and see what terms they'll offer to return home. The failure of royalist efforts in mid-1651 therefore increased the pressure on Elizabeth Butler to return home. The implications of these setbacks could not have been lost on the exiled royal family either. They could not maintain themselves and simultaneously provide for many of their close adherents on the continent after Worcester. They were not even able to do this prior to the defeat at Worcester. The Stuarts must likewise have realised that many of their adherents abroad had hoped that the continental exile would be relatively short. They must also have known that their followers had personal interests to protect. It is unsurprising then that Charles II sanctioned Elizabeth's return home. It cut down on his potential expenses, arguably made the butlers more indebted to their royal master, and opened up the possibility of having an adherent provide financial and political support to the exiles from home. Okay? 
In May 1652, the Marchioness wrote to Cromwell, informing him of her intention to return and reclaim her inheritance. She travelled homewards with her sons, Thomas, Earl of Osprey, Richard, Earl of Arran, and John, as well as, their as well as her daughter, Elizabeth, the following August. Yet, despite Cromwell's support, recovering even a portion of her inheritance took some time. Even before returning from exile, Lady Ormond encountered a tardiness in dealing with her case, caused by other demands on the people she was petitioning and by conflict between different administrative institutions. She also had to fend off rival claims to the estate, based either on purported pre-war titles and debts or on claims for services to Parliament. Nonetheless, as the 1650s rolled on, she regained a sizable part of her pre-marriage estates, thanks to her pre-existing family contacts. Now, it took about three years before Elizabeth Butler's quest met with success. November 1652 saw a committee appointed to investigate her claims for support. This was formed in response to an, early an earlier petition by her, which claimed a portion of her, her estate as recompense, as recompense for losses suffered while caring for Protestants during the 1640s. In January 1653, £100 was assigned to her from the Irish Customs to meet her urgent needs. This was followed in spring 1653 by a further order for £500 a year out of the Irish revenue. More importantly, a positive report on her petition, and her petition was sent to Parliament, and in early February 1653, the Commissioners for Irish Affairs were ordered to set aside Dunmore House and lands in Kilkenny to the value of £2,000 a year for her. An order repeated the following April. All these properties had previously descended to her from her parents. It came at a cost, however. In order to receive a favourable report to Parliament, Elizabeth Butler was obliged to distance herself from her husband. The submitted report stated that, that the Commissioners were informed that she, and I quote, did bear testimony, as far as one in her relation could, against the sinful compliance with the enemy which she observed in her husband. Due to difficulties in establishing which lands had previously belonged to Elizabeth Butler and her father, these directives had no immediate effect. The problem was further exacerbated by a tendency to assign her either wasteland or dispersed holdings. Consequently, Elizabeth Butler had to send an almost continuous series of petitions to the Commissioners for Irish Affairs throughout the early 1650s in an effort to get this previous order honoured. Indeed, in spring 1654, she had to petition Cromwell to ask that the previous year's parliamentary order take immediate effect. Interestingly, she also requested that other lands she had put in a claim for, aside from the property originally granted by Parliament, should not be distributed to others. This was received favourably, and in May 1654, the Council of State ordered that the legitimacy of her claims to these extra lands be examined. Again, though, there was no immediate return. Instead, a series of examinations began into what property had previously descended to her from her father, and had not been held by her husband. She had no funds at this stage, as another order to advance £200 out of the Irish revenue had to meet her needs had to be given. In late 1654, in fulfilment of the parliamentary order of February 1653, trustees were appointed to manage Dunmore House and the associated lands on behalf of Elizabeth and her heirs. The trustees were specifically ordered to ensure that none of the profits were diverted to the exiled marquee. The next year, 1655, was also taken up with advancing Elizabeth's claims to others' lands. By March, the Court for the Commissioners for the Adjudication of Claims allowed Elizabeth and her, children's, her children the lands that had previously been assigned to, her ancestor, assigned to her by her ancestor, Thomas Earl of Ormond. 
Another degree the following June allowed her to claim lands in Kilkenny, which had previously descended to her from the Marchioness of Desmond, both for herself and her heirs, but she could only do this after her husband's death. All this represented considerable success, but how was it achieved? It must be said that Elizabeth, late Elizabeth Butler received considerable aim, aid from persons in Britain and Ireland who had long-standing links to the Butlers. To give one example, they received considerable assistance from one of Munster's major landowners, John Percival. Now, the Percivals had been Ormond's clients before the 1640s, but they ended up fighting against the Royalists during the course of this decade. Like many old Protestant landowners in Ireland, they also became reconciled to the Cromwellian regime during the 1650s. Yet the Percivals still continued to honour their old links to the Butlers during the 1650s. In the wake of the Council of State's orders of mid-1654, Sir John Percival helped the Marchioness to gather documents proving that the lands she was laying claim to had been her father's property and had not been held by her husband. In late June 1654, John Percival wrote to his uncle, Sir Paul Davies, about papers to prove this. Percival also gave advice at this time on the legal significance of certain deeds that Lady Butler held. Percival's other kin were also involved in helping with Elizabeth Butler's case. His cousin, George Carr, acted as a liaison between Elizabeth Butler and Percival. In September 1654, Carr presented a paper to the lady on his cousin's behalf and reported back to Percival that the Marchioness took the paper very kindly. John Percival's assistance also extended into property management. In 1660, Percival was holding lands on her behalf in the barony of Lacca. When Lady Ormond learned of the despoliation of some of the forests there, she asked Percival to put it right. Clearly, in the case of the Percivals and the Butlers, old patron-client relationships still held good. Now, another reason for Percival maintaining strong contacts with the exiled royalist community lay in the characteristics of the anti-royalist forces during the 1640s and 50s. Simply put, the forces aligned against the royalists were not very cohesive, and at times some of the anti-royalist forces had more in common with their enemies than with their allies. The Percivals, for their part, were not sympathetic to the independent faction in Parliament, and instead had more sympathy with the Presbyterian Party, which had sought to compromise with the monarch in the 1640s. Yet the independents were ultimately triumphant when in the parliamentary forces. The Percivals, moreover, had been kinsmen, clients, and close confidants of the Earl of Inchiquin, when the latter was allied to the Parliament in the 1640s. There is no reason to disbelieve that all the motives that caused Inchiquin to defect to the Royalists in 1649, combined with the Percivals' discontent at the independence triumph, would not have caused the Percivals to be sympathetic towards Royalists. Also, a close association developed between Ormond and Inchiquin on the continent during the early 1650s. They had business interests together. They both were in piracy. Um, on this, during the 1650s, and so John Percival, in helping the lady, in helping the butlers, was simply aiding an associate of his family. The lady, it should be said, also received legal help from others, including her husband's old associate, Sir Morris Eustace. He spent much time helping her to regain a share of the butlers' lands. In early 1654, he wrote to George Carr about the, Marchion, the Marchioness's case. Soon after, he contacted another supporter lady, of Lady Butler, Richard Beresford, about documents needed to bolster her claim. Now, many of the same persons were involved in other of Elizabeth's schemes, which included securing property leases from the interregnum regimes and pursuing claims to other lands that had been part of her inheritance. The pursuit of further property seems to have been part of a broad scheme to restore the family's fortunes. 
We have already noted how she petitioned Cromwell in 1654 to prevent the distribution of lands which she might claim in the future. By mid-1655, she was actively seeking, with the assistance of an agent of hers, John Burden, and with George Carr's help, the return of properties in County Tipperary. Another petition to the Lord Protector in the following May, followed in May 1656. Here she sought to control the management of manors that had previously descended to her from the Marchioness of Desmond's. These lands were being held by the Commonwealth at this time, but were to descend to her, as I've said, on, and her heirs on the death of James Butler. The Marchioness now requested that, in order to preserve these lands for her and to make them more profitable, her nominees be allowed to lease these lands in trust for her. The Protectorate also looked favourably on this request. The aforementioned lands in Laca, which ended up in John Percival's hands, were part of this property. On the whole, this represented a significant coup. The lands in question consisted of 48,000 Irish acres, and though valued at over £2,000 a year, they were leased from the Commonwealth for £1,350. Yet despite this triumph, Elizabeth Butler did not rest. In early 1657, Burden presented another petition to the Council for Irish Affairs on her behalf. In this, she sought to lease lands that were officially designated as wastelands from the regime. Now, clearly, this migrant's return home was greatly facilitated by pre-existing social and personal networks. And Elizabeth Butler's return from exile met with much success, partly because of these contacts. This does not mean it was plain sailing for Elizabeth Butler after mid-1654. One problem she faced was high taxation, which limited her ability to exploit her estate. In autumn 1654, the assorted tax contributions placed on the lands she was seeking exceeded the income she would get from them. Periodically, other extra charges were, imp were also imposed on her. In one instance, the cost of surveying property assigned to her was deducted from the rents they generated. She also provided £5,000 bond of good behaviour for her son Thomas when he sought a passport to move to the United Provinces in 1657. Also, there was still the need to legally copper fasten her hold on those, land, on those lands that she recovered in the mid-1650s. An active attainder brought forward in early 1657, for instance, greatly worried her, as it potentially removed some of her rights to her property. She eventually succeeded in having a clause protecting her interests inserted into that act. There was likewise a political aspect to protecting the estate. The butlers as royalists could be reasonably expected to act in the Stuart interest at some stage. To counteract such suspicions, the Marchioness had to promise not to lease any place of strength on her holdings to untrustworthy persons. Those butlers that returned home, and by this I mean her sons, were also accused of assisting the Stuarts at least once. In a petition from the, mid, from the 1650s, Elizabeth was forced to concede that some unspecified actions of her sons had endangered her case for the return of her property. To counteract this, while claiming that there was no evidence against them, she offered to send her boys into exile into a country friendly to the Commonwealth. This petition is undated, but Thomas was implicated in Pinruddock's Rising of 1655, having had contact with one of the conspirators who brought the rebellion about. It is likely, therefore, that Elizabeth's appeal was made in that year. The petition was unsuccessful. Thomas was imprisoned in the Tower for six months and was released only on becoming ill. Yet it shows that when it comes to protecting the patrimony, individual family members were sacrificable. Elizabeth had previously borne witness against her husband. She was now willing to have her son sent abroad to protect the estate. It also reveals a use of exile for elite families. It could potentially be used to protect the patrimony. By exiling persons who were offensive to those in power, 
the dynasty increased its chances of keeping its lands. Finally, you might say, thank God, it has to be said that all this did not create a significant fortune. In 1657, when Thomas and John Butler moved to the United Provinces, Elizabeth could not contribute to their upkeep. Instead, her husband had to borrow £5,000 to support them. (coughs) Writing to her husband in August 1659, Elizabeth told James that she was having difficulty (coughs) providing for herself and her remaining family out of the estate, as the financial encumbrances upon it, combined with the poverty of the people, left her with only a small sum of money. Such was her shortage of funds that from time to time her agents had to negotiate abatements of certain states' dues. These problems did not surprise surprise the butlers. In early 1651, the Marquia had said that the cost of recovering the estate would be substantial and it would take time before any return would be seen from it. Anyway, immediate advantage was arguably not the point of the exercise, as the patrimony was not being managed for either Elizabeth's or James' benefit. This is made evident by one in financial encumbrance placed upon the estate in 1659, an undertaking given in a marriage contract to provide 1200 a year for her newlywed son, Thomas. Clearly, significant revenues were set aside from the estate to maintain the next generation. In the end, then, all the efforts were not for James and Elizabeth, but for future butler generations. As Elizabeth said in a letter to her husband in mid-1659, her own poverty did not trouble her. And I quote, if by it my children and family may be advantaged. Thank you.